Thank you, guys. We have a very, very talented team, don't we? And I especially ask for that song, which I'll explain in a little bit. Uh, today I want to kind of invite us into the Christmas story again, and it's a little bit hard to do that because it's so familiar to us. You know, we hear this story year after year. If, if we're regular churchgoers, we come to church year after year, and it's like, how many ways can you retell the same story uh, again? But what I want to invite us to do today is uh, look especially at the way one of the theologians of the Bible tells us about Christmas and weaves some threads into the nativity story that he will then uh, follow through uh, the rest of his gospel. And that is uh, Matthew. And I'm going to look at a passage with you today. I'm actually going to throw it on the screen because I'm not going to do really like an exposition of the passage as much as I want to pull out something that Matthew does in particular as he tells the Christmas story. And it's this, focusing on a name. Well, actually, three names that become integral to him, to the telling of a story. But before we do that, I want to give you a little quiz. I jumped online this week because I wanted to know what the most popular babies' names were in New Zealand last year. And so you can Google anything, so that's what I Googled. So I want to do a pop quiz for you. So if you've got a bit of paper, then pull that out. If you've you know, got uh, notes on your phone, then pull that up. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to start with girl names. Write down what you think may be two or three of the top ten girl names that were given to babies last year. If you want to do this in your brain, that's okay as well, if you'd rather not write, but have a stab at it, all right? Those of you who are new parents may have an advantage over those of us who are old, um, or if you've only got boys like me, then we're in big trouble. But anyway, we're starting with girls' names. What do you think the top ten girls' names might have been last year? So I'll just give you, a, give you 10 or 20 seconds just to think that through. Top 10 girl names of 2017, since 2018's not finished yet, so they don't have full numbers. Yep, you can have a chat, have a chat to people next to you if you want, if you have got no clue, which will be most of the guys, just look at the girls, I don't know, what would you call it? <laughs> All right, you got some names? You got a few ideas? Here they are, the top 10 girl names. All right, there's a few whoops. Charlotte, I see that hand. In fact, Charlotte, you whipped everyone. It's like, it's like about 40 extra girls called Charlotte over any other name in 2017. But some pretty, you know, some ones you, you would have expected, I think. Olivia, Amelia, Sophie, really popular, beautiful girls' names. Harper surprised me. Second highest, most popular girls' name in New Zealand. This is in New Zealand. For 2017, for this is from births, deaths, and marriages. All right, okay, boys' names. Do it again. Have a chat if you want to. What do you think might have been in the in the list of top ten boys' names last year? And I hope the phones is you putting the names in and not googling quickly to try and cheat because that wouldn't be really in the spirit of it. All right, you got some names? Got a few ideas? How many went with Brad? Can I see a show of hands? Oh, thanks a lot, everyone. That's just awesome. All right, here's the, uh, here's the list of boys' names last year. Oliver nailed it. 
So that, that was a bit of a surprise, I thought. Kind of fun, eh? You know? Okay, now I, I do want to see a show of hands. How many of you are teachers? Don't just see a show of hands. How many teachers do we have in the room? Nice and high. How many of you wipe names off based on some punk kids you've had in your teaching career along the way? <laughs> That's exactly right. I thought so. Now, what's fascinating to me, you might notice on the screen, there are 10 girl names and nine boy names. Because the 10th boy's name in New Zealand for 2017 blew me away. It absolutely surprised me. And it wasn't Brad, all right? <laughs> And it wasn't Harrison or Logan or Jaden. <laughs> but close. It was Arlo. <laughs> For those who don't know, that's the name of our dog that we got last year. <laughs> 194 little boys in New Zealand last year were called Arlo. And one puppy. This is Arlo last Christmas, which was his first Christmas when we had to wrap our Christmas tree in a red sleeping bag to keep him away from stealing the tree. This year's much better, by the way. He's only taken one decoration and chewed it up, so we're doing really well. But that surprised me. Arlo was the 10th most popular name, so there's 194 boys and one puppy at least in New Zealand called Arlo this year. It's quite funny, isn't it? What's in a name, though? If you were a parent and you had to go through that ordeal of naming your child, um, you know that it's, it's not always easy. Sometimes it, it can be relatively easy to come to a name that you both love, but other times to come to agreement uh, as two parents, if there's two of you trying to name one, it's actually really tough. And more often than not, we don't name our kids on the basis of the meaning of the name. Now, some of you might have. Some of you may have deliberately chosen a name because of what it means, but even when the meaning's significant, more often than not, it's what it sounds like to us that's the most important. So for some of you, you like us, we just picked three boys' names that we actually like the sound of. Uh, others of you may have picked a name that you like the sound of and actually you found its meaning and that was really significant and so that became really important to you. Uh, but often some people will choose a name simply to be creative. And I didn't realise, but I actually was online this morning as I was preparing for this, and I, I, I typed in um, creative celebrities' kids' names. And I was scrolling through some, and goodness me, I think if you've got money and, you know, fame, you do dumb things. Um, but the one that got me was Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver, the UK chef, and his wife Jules, as far as I know, from what I can find, have got five kids. Here are their names. Daisy Boo... Petal Blossom, Poppy Honey, Buddy Bear, and their latest addition is River Rocket. <laughs> now, I'm sure when they're three, that's kind of cute. You know, Daisy Boo, River Rocket. But when they're 15, and they're at high school, and they're like, hey dude, how you doing? Yeah, I'm Buddy Bear. It's just not working for me, you know? Yesterday, I, uh, I did a wedding. Uh, Martin and Jess uh, from our church, two of our young adults, got married, and I had the privilege of marrying them. And I just can't uh, imagine at a wedding service, you know, you know, do you, Jennifer, take Buddy Boo? You know, Buddy, buddy Bear, sorry, Buddy Bear. Daisy Boo, but I mean, anyway. 
It's kind of weird. Some names can be bizarre. Some names will be popular. What I want to do today, though, is as we enter this Christmas season, as I want to come to Matthew's Gospel, and I'm going to bring the the reading up now in a minute, and I want to look at the, the names that Matthew will highlight in the Christmas story. Because there's three names that he is going to, to underline and use in the Christmas story as he tells it that weave these threads through the rest of his gospel that become really key in his narrating of the story of Jesus. There are four gospels in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Two of them focus on what we call the Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. So Mark just jumps straight into the action. John does this beautiful prologue that that anchors Jesus in eternity past with the Father and then jumps into the action as well. It's it's Matthew and Luke that tell us about the the birth of Jesus and the the Christmas story, but they come from very different perspectives. So Matthew concentrates on Joseph's side of the story. Luke goes with Mary. Um, Luke's the one who tells us about the shepherds. (coughs) Peter, could I just have my water, please, mate? Just under that chair. Underneath that, underneath. Thanks, mate. Um, Luke tells us about the shepherds, whereas Matthew is the one who tells us about the wise men and so on. But in Matthew's story, as I've been looking at it again um, this week, I've just been blown away by the beauty of the way he tells it. So let me read you to it. It's Matthew chapter 1, and you don't have to turn to it unless you want to, um, because I'm not going to do this kind of walk through the passage as much as I just want to focus on the three names. So let me read it to you, and I'll flash it up here for you as well. Matthew chapter 1, starting from verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, so they're betrothed, which is engaged but stronger, so he's called her husband, but they're not actually husband and wife yet. Uh, But because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to to the law of Moses and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. What Matthew does is he tells this beautiful story, is he, he, he highlights these three key names or titles uh, for Jesus. The first one is Messiah or Christ. That's not a last name. It's not a surname. So we often think Jesus Christ makes it sound like, well, Jesus was his first name and, and he, Christ was his last name, you know, and his dad was Joseph Christ and, and so on. And it's not actually a surname. He would have been known as Jesus, the son of Joseph, or, or Jesus uh, ben Joseph or Bar Joseph. Um, so Christ is actually a title. Christ is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, and both of those titles mean the anointed one. And so it's highlighting the fact that Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah is the anointed one of God, the promised king. The second title that he highlights or the name he highlights is Emmanuel. 
uh, which comes to us from the prophecy of Isaiah, which we'll look at shortly. Uh, they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then the third one is Jesus, uh, which is obviously at the beginning in verse 18, and then later on, that's what the angel tells them to name the boy. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And these three names then become the key to the way that Matthew not only tells the Christmas story, but then will weave the rest of the story of Jesus um, through all 28 chapters. The key themes that he introduces with these three names, Messiah, Emmanuel, and Jesus, they become the three key planks or threads all the way through the rest of the story. So what do they mean? So the term uh, Messiah or Christ, that title, means the anointed king. It literally means the anointed one. So it was used in the Old Testament uh, really to describe a bunch of different people. All of the kings of Israel were technically messiahs, a small m. Um, they were all anointed when they became the king or before they became king. So uh, the story of the anointing of David, for example, by the prophet Samuel. Um, Samuel went and found him and, and poured oil on his head. And so being anointed with oil was a symbol of God the Holy Spirit coming on someone to empower them for the ministry God had called them. So they anointed kings. They anointed the priests. So Aaron and all of the priests that followed were anointed when they were put into that role. Um, sometimes they would anoint prophets or other important people. And so the idea of being anointed was that God was placing his hand especially on this person for this role, and so they were a Messiah or they were a Christ. But at the same time running through the Old Testament, it was a promise that the ultimate anointed one was going to come. So the Messiah, capital M, the Christ, capital C, was coming. And there were prophecies all the way through are the scriptures of the Old Testament, that this one was coming. And that was the hope of the people of Israel, especially as they were in, into exile. And then as successive empires and governments ruled over them, they looked forward to the day when their final, ultimate, anointed one, anointed king, would come and free them. So in the next chapter of Matthew, when these wise men, these magi from the east, these astronomers come from Persia or Arabia or somewhere like that, and they follow a star to the land of Israel, and they work out that this king has been born, so that when they get to Israel, they charge straight to Jerusalem and go straight to the palace where this tyrant king named Herod is ruling, and they say, where's this newborn king? We've seen a star. And Herod's like, who's this king? Because I'm going to kill him. And, and they call the religious leaders in and say, where is this king who's to be born? Where is the Messiah, capital M, meant to be born. And, and it's recorded in Matthew 2 that they, the religious leaders say, well, you go to the prophecy of Micah in the Old Testament, who said, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you're small in the clans of Judah from which the kings would come, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origin is of old from ancient times. In other words, the ultimate king, the Messiah you're waiting for is going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's why the wise men are sent to Bethlehem. And that's why Herod will later send his soldiers to that same place. So one of the key facets for Matthew as he tells the Christmas story is that this, this little baby whom Mary will lay in a feeding trough, a manger, this little child who the wise men will visit, probably not a baby at that point, more a toddler, but they will come and find, as we'll see shortly, he is the ultimate king. 
He is the long-awaited Messiah and ruler that Israel has been hanging on to for years. And it's one of the threads that's so key to the Christmas story that we sing it every year. In fact, we've sung it this morning. For example, we sung joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Because this is one of the key facets of the story. This baby, this child, is the king. He is the promised king of Israel. He is the promised king of the nations. He is the promised king who will rule over the world and, in fact, all of creation. And so joy to the world goes. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Or another carol we sung today too, O come all ye faithful, come and behold him, born the king of angels. And so one of Matthew's big claims, and this is probably one of Matthew's key emphases more than the other three Gospels, is that this baby, this man, this teacher, this miracle worker that I'm telling you about is the king of the world. He is the anointed Messiah. He is the one that everyone who follows God has been hoping for and praying for for generation after generation. And don't worry that he's from this poor family. Don't worry that there's rumors around his birth because his parents weren't even married yet. Don't worry that the fact he comes from this place called Nazareth, which is like Hickville, down in somewhere, you know, in the Wops. Don't worry about the fact that he's upsetting some of the the religious traditions of our nation and calling us back to a heart focus on God. This is the one. That's what Matthew's wanting to say in his gospel. And he starts that at the very beginning of the story with the Christmas story. He says, as you come and celebrate this season, as you come and worship this baby, understand you're worshiping the king. He is the Messiah, the Christ. The second name then, the second title that he goes with, is Emmanuel, which from the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament means God with us. Isaiah uh, was one of the, the most legendary prophets in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, and he prophesied during a pretty, at times, a tough time in the nation's history. The nation of Israel had divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had disappeared, had been obliterated. The southern kingdom, kingdom called Judah, at the time of this prophecy that we're talking about, was ruled by an evil king named Ahaz. Ahaz did not walk with God. He was not interested in walking with God. He followed false gods and idols, even sacrificed his firstborn son as a human sacrifice. He was an evil man. And he was under threat from a couple of nations around him. And Isaiah the prophet comes along, sent by God to King Ahaz, and says, despite your wickedness, Yahweh is a message of hope for you. You are not going to be destroyed. I'm not going to let these nations kill you. Trust me, I'm going to take care of them. Don't go running off to the superpower of Assyria to look after you. Trust in me. Now, Ahaz doesn't, but God gives him this promise anyway that he's going to deliver him regardless. And the sign of the promise, Isaiah says, is that a maiden, a young woman, is going to give birth to a child. And you're to call him Emmanuel, and the name of that child is, means God with us. Now, in Isaiah's day, there was an immediate fulfillment of that. A child was born to a young woman, not a virgin at that point, but a young woman. And that child was named Emmanuel, and and the name was meant to be a reminder to Ahaz and his court, who were all running from God, 
that even though they ran from God, God and his grace was with them and he was going to look after them through this testing time for them as a nation. But many of uh, the scholars of Israel believed through the centuries that there was an ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy that was going to come. Because a couple of chapters later in Isaiah, Isaiah would say, a child is going to be born to us, a son is going to be given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counsellor. He will be called Almighty God. He will be called the Father of Eternity. He will be the King or the Prince of Peace. In other words, Isaiah says, God is going to come as a human baby. And so the leaders and the scholars of Israel started to understand that this Emmanuel prophecy, God with us, was not just a promise for Isaiah's day, that you know what, God is with us whenever we face hard times and storms and everything else. But you know, in an ultimate sense, one day, God is actually going to become one of us. He is going to take on human flesh and step into human history. And somehow in a mystery called the incarnation, we still cannot fathom properly. The creator, God who made us, God the Son, without giving up any part of his godhood or deity, he stays 100% divine and yet wraps around that 100% humanity. He is just as human as you and I. And what Matthew says, as he says, this is to fulfill what Isaiah said. Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew is pointing us to the baby of Christmas and saying, not only is he the ultimate king, but he is also God. God who has stepped down into our world to be among us, to be with us. He is Emmanuel. That's why Paul will write later to one of the churches that he pastored, in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ the fullness of God lives in human flesh. 100% God, 100% man, combined in a mysterious miracle probably the greatest miracle of time, the incarnation. And again, we actually sing this every year. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Charles Wesley was saying when he wrote these words, is this is God the Son. This is the creator who made us, wrapped up in human flesh. Hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Or as another carol, a more modern song, Mary, did you know? I love this song. The words are beautiful. Second verse says, Mary, did you know? That your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Did you know your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. That's what Matthew's saying. 
He's saying as we come to the Christmas story again, which honestly can become quite ho-hum for us year after year, he's saying, I just want to bring you back to these names. This is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of all. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. When Mary changed, however they did nappies back then, she changed the nappy of God. I mean, get your mind around that. Or I love the final verse of this song too. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. That's what Matthew wants us to remember again as we enter this Christmas season. This is the great king. This is almighty God. And then thirdly, the third name he will highlight is you're to call him Jesus because he's the saviour of the world. Jesus was an incredibly popular name in this time. In fact, it was a very popular name through most of Israel's history. Jesus is actually the Greek translation. The actual Hebrew name is Joshua. So if you're a Joshua or you've named a son Joshua, you're calling your son Jesus. Good for you. Because Joshua and Jesus, that, that name means God saves. And it's a celebration. And ever since the great general of Israel's history who took over from Moses, Joshua led the people. Josh became one of the top ten names for Hebrew families all the way through their history. There were Jesuses running all over the place. And part of the beauty of that name was it was so common. Because again, this is, this is almighty God. This is the ultimate king who's just become one of us. So Jesus might have been one of a few Jesuses playing in the playground of Nazareth. He might have been one of a number of Joshes heading to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He was just another kid. But he was the king. The creator, sliding down the slide in a human body. But he wasn't only called Jesus, because it was an ordinary name for an ordinary Hebrew boy. Because again, that name meant he saves. And Matthew reminds us that Joseph and Mary were told to name their child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's like Emmanuel. It's not only this promise that one day God will save. With the birth of this child, Matthew is saying, this is the king, the one you've been waiting for. This is the God who is now with us. This is the one who will save us. And so another of Isaiah's magical prophecies in Isaiah 53, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. 
That he would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that will bring us peace would be placed on him and by his wounds we would be healed. That was the promise that Matthew was highlighting. He will save us from our sins. And he will do that as a human being by taking the wrath of God for us and taking our place on a cross and absorbing the judgment of God for our sin and our brokenness. And again, we sing this every year too. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Because this is Jesus. This is the saviour of the world. O little town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently this wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. In other words, no one noticed the arrival of Jesus. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. It's the promise of Christmas. This is not only the ultimate king, this is not only God, the creator, becoming a human being and joining us in earth. He is the one who will save us by giving his life for our sin and our brokenness and our mess-ups. And this is how Matthew begins the story. He invites us to gather around with the shepherds, with the magi, alongside Mary and Joseph. Now this, this one, that we celebrate year after year after year. He is the king. He is the creator. And he is our savior. And what Matthew will then do is he will take these three threads and he will weave his entire narrative of Jesus around these three things. And he will seek to show as he unfolds the story of Jesus as he unfolds his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, as he picks out the key miracle stories that he wants to highlight in his gospel, some of which are in common with the other gospels, some of which are unique to him. What he's wanting to show and prove again and again and again through his telling of the Jesus story is he is the king, the one who fulfills the prophecies of Israel. And he is God. That's God calming a storm. That's God sending out demons. That's God multiplying bread. And then ultimately the story will end with a whole bunch of space telling of the last week where this one will be betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified. But then will rise again and send us out with this message. This is the Messiah. This is Emmanuel. This is Jesus. One other thing I want to show you that Matthew does. Because you go into the next chapter of, of Matthew's story, but it's still really the, the story of Christmas. And as I said, Luke tells us about the shepherds and that part of the Christmas narrative. Matthew will tell us about these mysterious wise men, these magi uh, from the east. And he tells us in Matthew chapter 2, the star... They'd seen in the east, this is having been to Jerusalem and asked Herod and he'd talked to the leaders and they'd quoted Micah and said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. 
And so they head out from Jerusalem towards Bethlehem and the star they had seen, uh, they went, it went ahead of them until it stopped over the place in Bethlehem uh, where the child was. And when they saw the star again, the Magi were overjoyed and on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. By the way, this probably was not baby Jesus in the manger. Um, we, we take the whole Christmas story and we crush it down to one night. So they've travelled from Nazareth, she's in labour for half the journey, they get there, they can't find anywhere, the innkeeper gets beaten over the head, but there was no innkeeper in the story, by the way. There was no room in the guest room, which is what the new NIV translation says. So they get put up in a house in, in Bethlehem. She was probably helped to give birth by the midwives of the village, rather than in a stable on her own. And they have the baby... And they place him in a manger because the guest room's already taken, so Mary and Joseph stay with relatives probably in their main house. And they just lay him in the manger because it's so busy. And then probably sometime later, the Magi arrive. Because when King Herod sends his soldiers, he kills every child, little boy, under two years of age. So Matthew at this, I'm sorry, Jesus at this point might have been 15 months old. He might have been 20 months old. He might have been a toddler who'd taken his first steps and, you know, got his first teeth and already said dada and, you know, arlo or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, the Magi turn up and they see this child, probably a toddler, sitting on his mother's knee. And look what it says. They bowed down and they worshipped a toddler. Man, if you've been, ever been a parent of toddlers, there's no way you're going to worship that kid. Eh? <laughs> That's what these Magi did. And then Matthew tells us, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why those gifts? And why does Matthew even take up space to tell us? I mean, great, these, these mysterious people rock up and they find Jesus and they worship him and they give him some presents and they take off. Why the detail of what the gifts are. Because these three gifts pick up the threads of the three names that Matthew is highlighting. They bring gold as tribute to the king. They bring incense of worship to God. And they bring myrrh for the embalming of the one who will die. And the gold and frankincense and myrrh match fully with these three titles that Matthew is highlighting and these three themes that will resonate through his gospel. This is the king, so we will bring him gold as tribute. This is God in human flesh, so we will bring incense, which is representative of worship to him. And this is the saviour of the world who will die, so we will bring embalming liquid for his burial before he rises again. I mean, who else brings embalming liquid as a gift for a toddler's one-year-old birthday? The significance of these gifts is that they highlight once again the identity of this one who has come. And that's what the band just sung to us. Let me walk you through these verses. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all.
to reign. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity high. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshipping God on high. And then the third gift. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying. Sealed in the stone cold tomb. See, that's who this baby was. The king to whom tribute was owed. The creator God to whom all worship is due. And the saviour of the world who will give his life and die in your place and mine. And so the final verse of that song. Glorious now, behold him arise. Here's the three. King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sounds through the earth and skies. That's what Matthew wants us to understand as he tells us the story. This is the Christ. This is Emmanuel. This is Jesus. Christmas, God gave the greatest person as the greatest gift to meet our greatest need. This is no ordinary baby we celebrate. This is no ordinary season. This is no ordinary birth. Matthew wants us to know as he will tell us the rest of the story, this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary carpenter. This is no ordinary rabbi. He's the king. He is the God-man. And he is your saviour and mine. And he came as the greatest gift to meet our greatest need. See, he came as a king because, because I'm a foolish person who so often gets enamoured with stuff. I so often take the good things that God has given me and I make them idols. And so I, I, I take a, a career and I make it the most important thing. Or I take money and, and the comforts that money can bring and I worship that. Or I sell my soul for relationships and acceptance and approval, whether that's friends or, or marriage or even kids. I pursue silly things. But what I really need is I need a king. I need someone greater than I who will remind me that life is not about me. It's about him, his agenda, his plan. His work. I need something greater than me that will capture my allegiance and my obedience and my energy and I'll say this is what life is about. I need a king because I'm a foolish person who pursues idols. I need Emmanuel. I need God in human form because I'm not only foolish but I'm broken. I'm a person who lives in a, in a stuffed up world, in a broken creation. And I not only need a king that I can follow, but I need a God who will understand. I need a God who isn't aloof and far away and so high 
that he doesn't know what it's like to suffer. He doesn't know how hard it can be. He doesn't know what it's like to, to feel left out or to feel abandoned and alone. I want a God who knows the frustration of hitting your thumb with a hammer. I want a, a God who knows what it's like for your friends to walk away. That's what we have in Jesus. The creator God as a human walking this world experiencing its pain feeling its brokenness. So I need a king that I can follow but I need a God who will understand and I need a saviour who will take care of my problem. Because I fail all too often. And I not only need something to live for, and I uh, I not only need a God who understands the brokenness of this world, I also need forgiveness for what I've done. I need someone to give me hope. I need somehow for the guilt and the shame of all of the dumb things I've done to be taken away. And Jesus came as the Christ, as Emmanuel, as the Saviour, to meet my greatest need. Our biggest problem at Christmas is that it becomes about a beautiful tree and a stack load of presents, some seriously good food. And amongst all of that wonderful stuff, we miss it all too easily, don't we? We miss it. The coming of the greatest person who has been given as the greatest gift to meet our greatest need. And as we enter into this Christmas season, as we celebrate Christmas Day in a little over two weeks, can I invite us again to just stop and remember and amidst all of the gifts and the trees and the food, all of which is wonderful, can we remember what this is really all about? I want to do that even this morning. I want to give you a moment with God. I want to give you a moment just to sit with Jesus yourself. What I want to invite you to do, I'm going to flick back to this slide. I want to invite you to just look over this year that is gone and think, what this Christmas, what is it that you need? Do you need a king? Do you need to come to Jesus again, recognizing that this year has been much more about your pursuit and your agenda than his plan for this world? And if so, I want to invite you to draw near to him someone who lifts our eyes to something far greater? Or maybe has this year been one of real hardship and difficulty for you? I want to invite you to draw near to Jesus as your Emmanuel. God with you. Right there, fully understanding what you have faced. Or this year, 
Do you need forgiveness? Has this year been one of mistakes, of hurt, of shame? Then I invite you this Christmas to draw near to the God who took your sin and the penalty of your failure on himself. I just want to give you a minute as we launch into this Christmas season to bow before him and to bring him your gift of gold or frankincense or myrrh. And I'll just leave you to pray and then I'll close us out. Lord Jesus, we bow before you this Christmas. Thank you for coming. Thank you for that amazing trip from the heights and glory of heaven to the womb of a virgin girl. Thank you for coming as our king. The king of Israel and fulfillment of that nation's hopes the king of all nations and the one who will one day rule the world and the king we all need to follow to to have something greater to live for thank you for coming as our Emmanuel God with us our creator in a human body fully God but fully like us Thank you that when we come to you today in our weakness, in our suffering, in our tears, you know you've been here. You can relate. Jesus, thank you for coming as our Savior. Thank you for coming to die. Thank you that the shadow of the cross was already over the manger when you were first laid in it. Thank you that you didn't turn aside from that destiny. That you went all the way. You drank the full cup of wrath. And you paid for all of our sin. And we bow before you today, Lord Jesus. Our King and our God and our Saviour. And we give you our lives afresh this Christmas.